This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's a hundred k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay Z. Farm so hard. What's good, I'm your host Jim Pruitt, aka Farm in Ed, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. And of course, I have another special episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about something that a lot of you guys are doing and you probably wish you had a little bit more guidance from. But of course, I'm not going to be doing all the talking today. I have some phenomenal guests to come and talk about procedural sedation. And this is going to be a really cool episode. We're going to talk about some of the the physician side of things, some of the nursing side of things, and some of the pharmacy side of things. We're going to combine all this together. So when you're riding into work today, if you get a procedural sedation, you know exactly what to do. But I'm going to go ahead and pass it over and let my guests introduce themselves, and we're going to jump right into this episode. Uh, hey, y'all. Uh, my name is Quinn Cummings. I'm one of the uh, adult and pediatric uh, emergency medicine physicians at the Medical University of South Carolina. I did my training uh, residency in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana at LSU, and then I came to do uh, my emergency, uh, pediatric emergency medicine and uh, ultrasound uh, fellowships, um, actually, both of them. Uh, here at MUSC. Hey there, I'm Ben Jackson, one of the pediatric emergency physicians here uh, as well. I um, grew up here in Charleston, uh, did my training uh, at the University of Alabama, Birmingham in uh, pediatrics and then in pediatric emergency medicine and have been back uh, as an attending uh, here in the MUSC Children's Emergency Department since 2009. All right, perfect, guys. So, you know, we like to jump right into it, not tons of fluff. So I want to ask these guys a few questions, but I just want to get right into level of sedation and analgesia. Um, it's to the point to where what you call each level can be controversial. So I wanted to kind of go into that. And if you want to, you know, specify from an ED standpoint, what some things, uh, anesthesia standpoint, what are some different levels of sedation and where should we be targeting these patients? Yeah, a lot of these uh, levels are uh, carry definitions that that make sense uh, in the abstract, but at the bedside, there's uh, a lot of fluidity between one state uh, to the next. Uh, there's also some uh, some policy and oversight implications uh, to the various levels uh, that are defined, uh, and those also factor into how patients are are monitored and how procedures are staffed. So uh, the American Society of Anesthesiologists recon- recognizes minimal sedation or anxiolysis. Uh, a drug-induced state in which patients respond normally to verbal commands, although cognitive functions and coordination may be impaired, ventilatory and cardiovascular functions are generally unaffected. Uh, these patients generally just uh, ha- have a little bit of the edge taken off. They're sort of chilled out, and, um, and, and they uh, uh, probably at most re- require uh, pulse oximetry monitoring. Uh, as you move up a little a little uh, further into the spectrum, uh, moderate sedation on analgesia, formerly called conscious sedation, this is a drug-induced depression of consciousness during which patients respond purposefully to verbal commands alone or accompanied by light tactile stimulation. Reflex withdrawal from a stimulus is not considered a purposeful response. No intervention uh, for maintenance of a patent airway and spontaneous ventilation. Uh, no intervention should be necessary to maintain a, a airway patency and spontaneous ventilation should be uh, adequate and expected. And generally speaking, cardiovascular function is, is always maintained. I will say that a lot of uh, what gets done um, in, uh, in in certain clinical settings is, is termed moderate sedation. Uh, really, what we what we uh, don't want, I would say, at least in kids, uh, is a purposeful response to verbal commands for most of our procedures. Right? Uh, kids are, are, are scared; they're um, they're uh, in pain, and we're doing painful things to them, or we're needing them to be quite still. And so, moderate sedation, as uh, as I've covered just really doesn't get them uh, to a point where we can do the proper procedure. Now, Ben, when you say moderate sedation, you mean conscious sedation, right? Uh, yeah, I think and uh, has been labeled an oxymoronic term, uh, <laughs> conscious sedation that has no place in the nomenclature. Not a, uh, not a, leading, que- not a leading question at all. Correct. <laughs> Uh, uh, the uh, American Society of Anesthesiologists also recognizes deep sedation analgesia. Again, a, a deeper state of sedation, uh, a drug-induced depression of consciousness during which patients cannot be easily aroused but respond purposefully after repeated or painful stimulation. 
Right? These patients are are uh, significantly depressed in terms of their um, in terms of their responsiveness to us, but but painful uh, uh, stimulation should elicit response, purposeful response from them. Um, we would expect uh, these patients who are deeply sedated to maintain ventilatory function independently, uh, though we need to be prepared to intervene uh, should that uh, slip away. Uh, these patients may require some um, some assistance and, and maintenance of airway patency and could potentially uh, require positive pressure ventilation uh, if they uh, progress a little more deeply um, into their uh, depression of consciousness. We would expect their cardiovascular function uh, to be adequate, though though a bit more impaired uh, than in, than in uh, lesser sedation states. Um, but uh, but deeper sedation or deep sedation rather is is a really a a, a more dangerous state that I think uh, your emergency medicine uh, physicians and staff should be comfortable caring for patients in this state. Certainly competent to uh, uh, with the skills necessary to to um, uh, deliver deep sedation and to, to rescue patients who who have any untoward events uh, from it. Uh, but it's but it's a state that should be treated with with a high degree of respect. Yeah and. You know, going one step further than this, um, obviously, is general anesthesia, and that's not what we, not what we do um, in the emergency department. At least, certainly not on purpose. I would mention finally a, a, a state of sedation that has is somewhat controversial in terms of who recognizes it uh, and how it gets classified. But dissociative sedation, as rendered by the dissociative agent ketamine. <laughs> Uh, really uh, uh, adored by emergency physicians, particularly those providing procedural sedation care to, to pediatric patients, um, though growing perhaps in its, uh, in its use in adults um, with, some, uh, with, with some co-administration of other agents perhaps. But nevertheless, ketamine will induce a trance-like cataleptic state characterized by profound analgesia and amnesia. While protective airway reflexes are maintained, spontaneous respirations occur and cardiopulmonary stability is preserved. This facilitates moderate to severely painful procedures as well as uh, relative immobilization uh, for patients who are otherwise uncooperative. I will say ketamine uh, in this dissociative state of sedation from a responsiveness standpoint almost behaves like general anesthesia, but from a cardiopulmonary stability standpoint is uh, akin to minimal to moderate sedation. So it, it, uh, we would argue in the emergency medicine uh, side that it, that it warrants its own state of classification uh, others uh, with with some different perspectives and different contexts may uh, may contend with us that it's either uh, moderate or deep. All right, so it seems like we got to a lot of the preparing for this, and I know a lot of pharmacists sitting here, dude. What about the drugs? This is the star of the show, you know. Maybe I think that's one of the things we want to look at. And before we get into talking about individual drugs. I just want to caveat, like, what are we actually looking for here? We're looking for like the ideal agent. We want a few things to happen. We want to produce this angiolysis that we're talking about. And even during like painful procedures, we want to make sure we do that. Uh, produce a predictable state of sedation um, for the given doses and minimal effects on airway and cardiopulmonary status. I want to emphasize that again. This is a big player when it comes to what we're doing. We want to have a predictable degree of sedation. That's going to be phenomenal to make sure you don't have that airway compromise or the blood pressure issues that we can have. Uh, then, then from there, again, I want to produce the amnesia for the procedure, uh, produce no interactions with any other agents that they can use. And I also want to do something that's most likely reversible. So that's going to be key as well, but not necessarily all the time. And then from there can be administered painlessly and it's titratable and has a rapid onset, short duration and a rapid recovery. So all of these things you want to just put in your in your bowl. And if you guys heard the Brain of Vane song, my secret sauce, my secret sauce to procedural sedation is going to be something that can hit all of these points. So those are the things that I'm, I'm looking for. Is there anything that I'm missing that you guys would probably recommend for if you can make you can make your own drug and, you know, be big farmer for a second? What would it be? Well, I think the question is, what is the ideal uh, procedural sedation Agent and why is it ketamine? <laughs> why is it ketamine every time? Uh, no, I think you know. Probably for me um, and for my patients, you know, more importantly, it's going to be tailored to um, who is my proceduralist. So if I'm the sedationist, who is my proceduralist? What is my patient? What spectrum of the disease are they? Are they in? How? What's the dur estimated duration of procedure? And what contraindications do they have? You know. Um, I know for a long time, propofol um, 
had a contraindication for egg allergy. I, I, I don't know if that's still the case anymore, um, but I remember that was for a while. Um, I always thought it was lactose intolerance, but I think that's just because it looks like milk. I think the LexiComp pharmacist will say that, but I think we've now got more data right. to say that that's not necessarily the right. case. And for what we're trying to do, it's not really a big deal. Right. And I also, obviously, you know, take into um, account vital sign abnormalities. Of course, at that point, I'm probably taking a step back and saying, hey, is a procedural sedation appropriate yeah. for this patient? You know, that's probably um, another cognitive um, sort of checkpoint that I have is because I love doing procedural sedation. I also love doing regional anesthesia. Yeah. Obviously, you know, that was the last uh, podcast that I was on was talking about regional anesthesia. And for both of those, I have to take a step back and say, I know I love to do this. I know that it might make this patient's stay in their emergency department more enjoyable, but is this what's safe? Yeah. Is this what's best for this patient? Is there a more appropriate setting? Is there um, a more appropriate time for this to happen? You know, is this emergent? Yeah. Is this urgent? Because if it's not truly emergent and any untoward event happens, I mean, I'm on the hook yeah. for that. And I would feel bad too, because, yeah. you know, I want what's best for my patients. I think this is a, a critical point to emphasize. We wear a lot of hats in the emergency department, uh, proceduralist, sedationist, but we should never take off our risk stratificationist hat. We should always keep in mind that what we do involves some measure of risk every time we do anything, um, uh, prescribe a drug or not, uh, discharge a patient or, or admit the patient. Um, but entering into a, a procedural sedation encounter is, is very much um uh, involves risk that that we need to be willing to to identify and then and then to navigate. So I think uh, like like Quinn says, uh, we love doing this. I find it to be among the most tangible means of uh, of rendering compassionate care is helping um, really uh, uh, not just the patient but the patient's caregivers, parents through a really terrible day they didn't plan for. They came to see me today because something bad happened uh, to them, uh, to their child, uh, and then uh, obviously to to the family unit and. We've got to help them through that. And it's really a huge privilege to be able to provide compassionate care in this regard. But I don't want to add to their uh, their burden by uh, doing things in a risky manner. Yeah, and I think because the, po the potential adverse consequences of a procedural sedation down to anoxic brain injury, right? Because that, that's really would be the worst possible outcome, you know, anoxic brain injury, death, obviously extraordinarily rare, but that is the theoretical worst. That's why probably the safest, um, the, the safest way to approach it is to be a dedicated sedationist and have a dedicated proceduralist. Now this is really in an, in an ideal world. And I think um, the reality in a lot of community uh, emergency departments is that um, the emergency physician doesn't have a massive team to come uh, assist with, uh, the sedation and the procedure itself. Um, and they're usually the ones performing the sedation as well as performing the procedure. And um, that can be uh, fraught with, I think, medical legal risk. But, you know, that 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 is the reality um, for um, a lot of patients um, that uh, undergo procedural sedation in the emergency department in the United States. All right, guys, we're going to just go through piece by piece and look at each of these drugs. And I'm going to hit the, the high notes of dosing and things of that nature. Then we can just really talk about the, the, the advantages and disadvantages of those drugs. So I think the first one that starts off is the more common agent of propofol. That's going to be the one that most people are very uh, familiar with. And uh, for, forgive my French, but sometimes we call it a little Jackson juice, you know, R&P. Uh, but it's something that we, we, we think about as being first. Dosing is actually an interesting thing. So we say... The dosing on paper is one to two milligrams per kilogram. And I would argue that that's the total dose that we would probably start off with, with additional. So my preference, and again, you guys can chime in on this. I like to do 0.5 mix per kg syringes and go from there. Start off with 0.5, see how things go. I've had a patient who is completely snowed with 0.5 and have patients that needed 2.5 to get to an adequate amount. But I think starting off on the lower end really helps out quite a bit. And then you can continue to titrate. And I love propofol for this particular reason. So the dose is probably one to two mix per kg overall. But I think we should, when we titrating, I like to do mine in 0.5 increments. And I hand, actually prepare my syringes that way. So you guys don't have to think about it. It's, this is 0.5 every time I give it. If I want to give less, I can. I can give half of that and get 0.25. So when you're doing all of your dosing, you can say, okay, 
I gave two syringes full. That's one make per cake. If I gave, you know, I gave four, that's going to be two make per cake. And it really helps out from when you're training people who don't do it often or if you're attending and you're training interns, things of that nature. It really helps out because you start thinking about, you know, this is 22, you know, milligrams. This is 24. You get lost in the sauce, I would say. So it really just help me bring it back and I'll keep control of that. The nursing can keep, keep control of the exact amount and we should we could confirm that prior to getting started. But I think if you know every time I want my syringes in 0.5 mix per kick, this patient's 80 kilos, I, I want 40 milligrams. So I think that's where I go from a dosing standpoint. You guys any input on that? I would say, first of all, let me just, uh, I'm not getting paid to do this, but let me uh, c- uh, contend for all of you who may be listening to enlist an ED pharmacist to help you with drug preparation, drug, drug decision uh, making. Uh, it just makes a lot, it just offloads a lot from our uh, our brain. We can think of um, of indications and potential uh, uh, drugs, but um, but having this level of expertise and uh, and just really just dumbing it down, right? I can't tell you how many times I've looked at a syringe and said, you know, is this one per kilo or is this half per kilo? That uh, that's a great point that I think um, uh, all of us should should walk away uh, from this podcast with is that um, most of us won't have the benefit perhaps of an ED pharmacist drawing up drugs for us. So it'll either be ourselves or an ED nurse or uh, 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 preparing the drugs and then handing us syringes uh, to uh, to deliver. And so so um, that's a great tool um, or or a strategy just to to make sure I know what I'm giving my patient. And really, it only takes uh, one instance of. Having uh, ordering the incorrect concentration, uh, like the in, in, incorrect formulation that has a different concentration than what you're used to, and drawing it up, and just kind of having that sphincter tightening moment of, I almost gave my patient ten times as much propofol as they were supposed to receive, or ten times as much ketamine, or you know, a tenth, you know. Um, so making sure you know ha- having an ED pharmacist to double check, triple check for something that is as crucial and um, potentially uh, life-threatening um, as an improper or inappropriately dosed uh, procedural sedation. So I think as, as we go into talking about the, the onset things that nature, the great thing is that propofol works really fast. The, the textbook and the LexiComp pharmacist in me, as I'm wearing a not a LexiComp pharmacist shirt, says that it's going to be 30 to 60 seconds onset. I would argue that for most of my patients, it's going to be like 15-ish, mm-hmm. 15, 20 seconds. Ultra rapid. As soon as you push that, that flush behind it, you're going to see some effect. Um, and then the duration is going to be anywhere from, I think, 5 to 10 minutes. But again, I would argue that if you're giving half of the dose in this mechanism that we're talking about, it's going to be a little shorter. I'm, I'm sure. thinking 2.5 to 5 minutes once you actually reach the threshold. You have to get there first, then you're going to have that duration. And that's going to be something that we really, really enjoy about propofol. But I got to talk about the, the nasty effects, the things we have to look for. That's going to be the point of having hypotension and bradycardia. What we don't consider is that propofol has calcium channel and beta blocker t- properties. And I think once I say that, it's like, oh, I'm giving DILT and I'm giving metoprolol at the same time. It, of course, it makes sense. And if you're looking at data wise, we're talking about anywhere from close to 20 to 25 percent reduction in the systolic. So I like to say, what's my systolic blood pressure? Half that a couple of times. Can I tolerate that amount of drop? Then it really helps me out as far as thinking about what's going on. And I like to say I'm not just preparing medication, but that's what I'm assessing as well. When I go to procedural sedations where I'm offloading the task of drawing the meds up and checking, I'm also saying, hey, do we have fluids? Do we have any type of, you know, vasoactive agents as well? Because based off the the data and based off this patient, he may be more likely to tank than some of the other people. So you have that component as well to, to consider. Uh, it's going to hurt. So the injection site pain is something that's actually a, a real deal. And these patients, depending on if you're pushing on the same side as they have the injury, you may have a patient actually <laughs> yank their arm and that's the same shoulder you're trying to reduce. And it can be discomforting. I think talking to the patient and hey, it's going to burn for a few seconds. You're going to be out in a second helps them stay still. And it helps you not freak out because I've seen people drop the syringe because the patient yanked their arm back and they wasn't prepared for that. So these are like just little caveats to consider when it comes from propofol. Um, the PRIS, the propofol and infusion, uh, propofol related infusion syndrome, that's really a deal with big doses. Yep. Big doses infusions for a long period of time. Long time yep. I know it's more common in pediatric population and they are really focused on it. It is something that you want, you, you want, you never start propofol without someone saying the word yep. PRIS. No, so, so they're not a big fan, but just have that in mind. 
if that's something that can happen, but it usually doesn't happen in the ED. It usually doesn't happen with the doses that we're, we're using. So just keep that in mind and don't be a Lexicomp pharmacist when it comes to that. Now, I mentioned a few of those different things. Can you guys tell me, you know, why propofol is ideal for you guys when being used for procedural sedation? So I think that uh, at, at least for the uh, procedures that I use propofol for is they're often so short in duration and uh, the painful or noxious stimulus is going to be so quick on, quick off. Um, those are indications for me um, to, to hit propofol. So whether that's, um, you know, reducing a hip, because, you know, it uh, probably has some, some neuromuscular blocking effects too to cause some, uh, some muscle relaxation. Um, or, uh, you know, nasal foreign body, um, I think, is another one that I've, that I've used it for with the uh, LMA at the ready because, you know, nasal foreign body doing a propofol, we're looking at apnea as a potential sure. risk and um, using a nasal entitled CO2 in that situation is not going to be um, amenable um, for this type of sedation uh, just because of the location. So those are ones where, you know, I sort of have my, air, like, just think a little bit more uh, closely about apnea and, you know, um, visually monitoring their respiration, um, I think, which is, you know, fraught with its own difficulty and, um, and caveat with that. Hey, you mentioned earlier uh, among the traits of an ideal procedural sedation agent would be reversibility. Obviously, there's no exact reversal uh, agent for propofol, but metabolism and time yeah, and, and both of those time. being very, uh, very quick uh, is a real, uh, makes propofol a real, a real um, asset to have in our armamentarium. But like, uh, like Quinn said, um, the withdrawal of that noxious stimulus may render your patient unbalanced in terms of the sedative on board and the, uh, the untoward um, uh, cardiorespiratory effects with propofol in particular. And, and, and so you may need to be, or you absolutely need to be willing to um, and ready to, to intervene and, and assist the patient uh, until that metabolism has occurred and uh, time reversibility has, uh, has ensued. All right, guys, let's talk about probably most people's favorite drug. I'm not going to pretend I'm not an ED person. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not a ketamine fan. I'm oh, not gonna I pre- thought it was going to be Brevitol. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that my ID bat doesn't have ketamine on it. I'm not going to pretend any of these <laughs> But I'm going to talk very, you know, I'm going to try to keep my bias here. But, okay, let's talk about ketamine. The dose that we traditionally see is going to be similar to propofol. One to two mix per kick, and I have the same caveat. I hand the syringes over in 0.5 mix per kicks, and we go from there. Pediatric, you can get into some things like nasal uh, dosing. And the dosing is big there. Three to nine mix per kick. Again, you're gonna get, you're probably going to change your formulation when it comes to that. So that's one thing I want to caveat to you guys. There's many, many formulations and concentrations of ketamine. And sure, if you're an ED pharmacist or anyone who helps with stocking the Omnicell, Try to limit the amount of concentrations that you have because that's an easy way, especially in a pediatric population, to get more than what you would need. So, of course, we know that from a mechanism action standpoint, ketamine is an NMA receptor antagonist. It's going to block a lot of that excitatory component that it, that it needs. And it's unique because it provides this dissociative uh, state and it creates like a trance-like state and causes amnesia in patients and it has analgesia properties. As far as onset, again, the textbook will say 30 to 40 seconds. Uh, depending on how you're administering it, you may see a quicker effect. And I love the fact that I know my ketamine is working by just looking at their eyes and seeing that nice diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, we're good to go. Duration can be varied here. Um, I usually see, again, five to 10 minutes once you get to that dissociative dose. And the phenomenal thing about ketamine, you know you're wearing off when a nystagmus goes away. So that's going to be a cool thing about this where you can barely time it. So we're looking at propofol and ketamine. We have similar onsets, similar durations. But again, caveat in the fact that you have to get to that point, that level of the level, the level of sedation that you're looking for. You have to get there first. Then you have your duration. So I think some people say, oh, well, it's going to work for this long. But they never titrate the patient to the adequate amount and they can have some some issues with their with their procedure. Um Adverse effects, we have to be honest with all that. You have a dose-related increase in heart rate and blood pressure. This is transient. So keep that in mind. Again, if your patient skyrockets up, if you're doing a chest tube insertion, trauma, don't freak out thinking the patient is bleeding to death because the heart rate spikes. That's just my ketamine. Right. <laughs> it's no big deal from there. And you can, of course, you can have 
this increase in entropy, which can cause increase in myocardial demand. Um, the emergent phenomenon is something that I think it freaks the nurse out more than it freaks everyone else out. Uh, it's scary. People yell for a second. They say some cool things, very cool things. And then you go from there. Um, emesis is something that we have to be considerate of. Uh, some people go as far as pre-treating with, uh, with Zofran and some other agents. I don't know if there's any data for that. But again, if, if it makes you feel better, you know, you, you like it, I love it kind of deal. And then the thing that I think the scariest component is the laryngeal spasm. And this is going to be more it's going to be more associated with big concentrations quickly. So if you're slamming your ketamine and you're not giving it over, you know, 30 to 30 seconds to 60 seconds, that's when this can happen. This is one of the things I see commonly done that I try to uh, step in on and say, hey, if you're not prepared for everything, we're just we don't follow the, the procedure the preparation to the T. Please make sure you're giving your ketamine a little slower because that's a, a way for you to make things more interesting than any of us want. Um, and now I, I enjoy very boring procedures now. Sure. I don't want anything interesting to happen. And that's one of the interventions that I say, hey, this is what I'm looking for as well. Can you slow down the administration? I usually hold a phone out, show it to my, my resident or my, my attending and say, hey, you're about 30 seconds in. You're doing great versus it's three seconds. And I've seen that happen. Well, I've sure. seen laryngeal spasm and it's a pretty disturbing event to happen when you have other things going on. Um, so those are my big things for my verse effects and that nature. Talk to me about the pearls and why you like to use ketamine. And, and we can make a whole episode on this, but let's just talk about the things from, from this procedural sedation standpoint. Uh, so before I get into the pearls, uh, one of the pitfalls, I think, um, tagging on to what you were saying, Jimmy, um, is that this is a dissociative sedation. It's not a deep sedation. So especially in, in pediatric patients, I've seen some of them call out for their parents. So obviously we try to have the parents leave the room. I never insist. And, you know, but I say, listen, your kid might call out for you and cry and you're going to want to go up and hold their hand and you're going to be sad about it. But they are in outer space. They are in candy land. They, that is just an unconscious mechanism that they are exhibiting and that we're witnessing. And it, we're innocent bystanders to that. And Parents are very, I, I used to think that, you know, for my kids that I'm absolutely going to be present during a procedural sedation if, you know, my kid breaks his forearm or something like that. Now I'm thinking, of course, it's free babysitting and I'm out of here and I'm going to go, you know, have a lovely lunch with my wife while, you know, uh, Dr. Jackson fixes his forearm. But um, I think there's a tendency to uh, rush. And so seeing a patient um, viscerally react during a procedure or cry out. And even though they're fully dissociated, the sedationist often wants to, or at least the proceduralist often wants the patient to be deeper somehow. And sometimes it's just not possible. You know, you can't really get any deeper than completely dissociated and giving more medication or, you know, rapidly, oh my gosh, they're, they're moving their body. So we want to, you know, and we're trying to do a closed reduction. Now we want to give ketamine, hurry up, let's draw it up and give it, you know, there's sometimes you have to take a step back and say, listen, maybe there's, maybe we'll add propofol now. Maybe this yeah. becomes a ketofol sedation, um, you know, or, or, or maybe thinking about giving some um, benzodiazepine during the, something else, you know, it's usually not more ketamine. That's the answer. That's sort of whenever you can get into, in, into trouble. Yeah, I would also say uh, with respect to ketamine, as as with propofol, they mentioned the uh, the respiratory depression and the uh, the potential for hemodynamic suppression with propofol. So you want to make sure those patients are, are optimized instead of, in terms of their volume status uh, that they're they're not like sort of unrecognized sepsis or profoundly uh, volume down or hemorrhagic. Uh, with ketamine, uh, you'd want to make sure your patient doesn't have uh, untreated. Uh, uh, hypertension, that, that uh, most of this dose-related increase in heart rate and blood pressure is very well tolerated. It's like almost clinically insignificant, but although it, you, you might, uh, 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 your attention will certainly be drawn to the monitor when you see marked uh, tachycardia um, or, or marked hypertension for a, for a very young child, let's say. Um, but, but generally speaking, it's very well tolerated. It's dose-dependent, and once the kid metabolizes the drug, it's gone. But you would want to uh, take note of the patient's uh, comorbidities, and, and if, uh, uh, if patient has unrecognized and untreated hypertension, may want to consider that ketamine wouldn't be the agent of choice, uh, or at least ketamine alone, uh, to accomplish the procedure. So uh, things that I do to mitigate some of the uh, expected adverse effects, like, um, like post-ketamine administration, uh, nausea and vomiting, is... Prior to the procedure, whenever I'm uh, consenting the, the patient or consenting the parent, 
um, to uh, administer ketamine to their kid. Um, I'll sort of tell them, hey, the first thing you're going to see is this nystagmus where their eyes sort of jiggle side to side. And that's how you know, you know, they're in they're in Candyland um, and they're not present with us here. Sort of lights are on, but nobody's home. Is your kid an easy puker? Because if they are, we're going to go ahead and administer. And actually, the, you know, um, on Dancitron, um actually has a pretty low number needed to treat. So my understanding is somewhere around nine or ten. Um Pretty much a free shot, but um, I don't do it routinely still. Um, just because of my experience, I really haven't seen too much um, nausea and vomiting. And I think that's probably because our, um, and this is a topic for a whole nother podcast, is our NPO times are, are getting a little bit shorter. And that, that probably has some uh, some effect is, is my, my guess. Um, so I'll ask them, hey, if they're easy puker, we're going to go ahead and give them some um, some Ondansetron prior to. I'll give them a couple of uh, emesis bags to go home with. I say, listen, keep this in your car. We're going to wait 30 minutes after your kid wakes up and, you know, give them a popsicle. Sometimes they still don't puke until they're in the car. So it's always good to have one, you know, keep one at the bedside table. Keep one, you know, always good to have an emesis bag um, sort of at the ready. In terms of the emergence phenomenon, um, I usually just tell patients what to expect. Say, listen, you're going to trip out. You're going to have some of the craziest dreams that you've ever had in your life. I would love for you to not have a crazy nightmare and for it to just be a cool, you know, visual trippy dream that, you know, we laugh about later. Um, Definitely, you know, with kids, there's a lot of sort of uh, familial relationship where the mom has a lot of anxiety that sort of transferred onto the kids. So sometimes, you know, I'll sort of just read the room and prophylactically give uh, something for angiolysis um, or, you know, control their pain really well prior to, uh, if at all possible. Um, and then whenever they are actually emerging, um, it's, kids especially, I've, I, I found they'll still have a little nystagmus and they'll kind of have some diplopia, some, some double vision. Having the parents with them as soon as possible afterwards, um, I think helps a lot just with a little bit of reassurance hearing, you know, hearing mom's voice, you know, holding dad's hand, something like that. Um, I think can go a, a really long way um, with with preventing that. Yeah, I would add lights down, really minimal stimulation in that procedural room uh, to allow the kid to transition back to from dissociation to uh, regular wakefulness um, with uh, with caregiver presence, um, reassuring voice. Um, but but yeah, minimizing the stimulation to ensure that that they have um, uh, a smooth transition. Yeah, also, I also try to add a little music into the situation. So uh, if, pa- if patients are awake for uh, the sedation, I let them choose. Um, and that has had mixed results. Um, um, if they're uh, fully dissociated or going into deep sedation, um, I get to choose. And I usually do Mozart or something, you know, something relaxing classical music. Um, one other thing uh, that I like to do uh, with uh, ketamine sedations especially is give a, uh, a bit of a, a larger dose off the bat. Oftentimes, also I'll start 1.5. So I don't do one. I go straight to 1.5. Oftentimes, I have to redose less. They, it just lasts just a little bit longer. You know, I, I start to redose around 15 minutes or so after giving 1.5, and then I'll give an extra 0.5 or so every 10 minutes. You know, or I'll add an additional agent like propofol or something like that. Um, every 10, 10 minutes or so. But I found that just that initial dose of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram is often enough for the vast majority of, especially orthopedic procedures that we do here, to last through the reduction, through the, uh, the immobilization and like the, uh, the molding of the splint, especially, which is pretty painful. And then there's sort of, it's nice, call parents back as the x-ray is being done and, you know, it just... It's nice to not have to redose. Yeah. I feel like we reduce a lot of the side effects from redosing. One of the things that uh, has been tried or sort of a standard practice when, when ketamine was first introduced into procedural sedation care was co-administration with midazolam. Um, over time, that was shown not to diminish um, uh, with uh, any evidence uh, basis the uh, um, uh, Occurrence of the emergence phenomena or an untoward emergence uh, agitation, but um, but it did show actually some some benefit to um, diminishing uh, 
uh, recovery emesis. So um, I, I have heard um, and have seen uh, plenty of times that the way your patient goes down with ketamine is likely to be the way the patient uh, um, emerges. So um, I do think there is a role um, for really anxious, agitated kids prior to even being sedated to giving a, a bit of midazolam um, in a small dose to try to help um, him or her transition into readiness for being sedated subsequently um, and, and hopes that that patient uh, enters the ketamine dissociative state in a calmer, um, uh, more soothing manner, and then hopefully will emerge in, in a similar uh, calmer manner. All right, guys. So that's going to be our two big guns. Uh, I will say that benzodiazepines will probably be the next role and is, is really going to help you depending on the level of sedation that you want. And I think the agent we use more commonly, and if you have heard any of my other work, I'm a big fan of midazolam when it comes to my benzos because it really gets the job done for people in the ED. Um, the dosing that we traditionally see is going to be 0.1 mg per kg. Again, you can see some ranges there when, when, when talking about pediatric patients and if you're giving an intranasal or not. Again, be conscious of your concentrations. Um, there's a five per one at my shop and I, ha- and I have a, a one per one at my shop. So one milligram per one ml. Then I have another one that's going to be a five milligram per one ml. That's something to be conscious of. Most people try to keep one in their, in their ED, but I have two. So I think that's something to be prepared for, for small people. It shouldn't be as big of a deal because you're not giving huge doses, but for the adult population, what you're more commonly here, I want two of our set. I want four of our set. And my thing is, I think that anywhere from two to five, from my anxiolysis standpoint, it's a solid dose. Once you start getting bigger than that, I start saying, hey, um, are we prepared for procedural sedation or just is something you want to be, you know, just, just to relax them because we're getting we're getting pretty big there because five aversa can can knock some of the, the we, toughest up. They'll be relaxed. Yeah. Highly relaxed. <laughs> yeah. Relax with not breathing, things of that nature. So just keep that in mind. Um, Pretty quick onset, I would say this is probably closer to the textbook. I would say probably one to two minutes you start to see something. By five minutes, they should be nice, yeah. uh, nice and calm. And I, I joke around because it's, you know, it's a benzodiazepine is going to work on a GABA receptor. Is that you're basically giving them a nice cocktail of whatever you like, whether you're a tequila person, or you're a Jack and Coke kind of person. You're giving them a pretty nice little dose of that and it's really going to put them back. The, do- the duration is a little weird. Again, textbook going to say 30 to 80 minutes. Realistically, clinically, I see anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes once you get them to the level they, they need. And, of course, from an adverse effect standpoint, we're concerned about respiratory depression and hypotension. Um, you can have patients, you know, drop pretty precipitously right in front of you. And then you can have someone who doesn't do much at all and you need multiple repeat doses. So, um, for me, I traditionally see my docs ask for Midazolam plus fentanyl plus another agent, um, not necessarily used by itself as often, but that's just one of the agents we see. Can you guys talk about some of the benefits or some different caveats to when you would want to use midazolam? So um, on, on the pediatric side, uh, we use a lot of oral midazolam, um, and I usually give about 0.4 to 0.5 uh, mg per kg. Tell parents, you know, it's going to put your kid about two to three beers deep. I usually get a little chuckle from them. They're like, okay, I get it. That's sort of what we're aiming for. Um, especially with kids, there's, it's multimodal, right? Um, so there's going to be some pain control. There's going to be uh, some angiolysis that occurs. Not, not pain control from the midazolam, right? Because it has no, um, has no analgesia uh, associated with it. Um, but uh, p- pain control in some other way, um, the angiolysis will come from the midazolam. Um, and a lot of times it's like, okay, it's a little uh, scalp lack or, uh, you know, a forehead laceration uh, that needs to be, uh, repaired and we'll do some topical anesthetic sort of, you know, a lot of, you know, set the mood distraction. There's really a lot of it. So midaz- oral midazolam, I feel like is just one piece to a pretty big, um, to a pretty big puzzle of, um, how best to approach, uh, pediatric procedural sedations for, for minor procedures like that. And I will say, um, intranasal midazolam has a role as well. It will be a little quicker onset than your, your oral. Uh, the downside to intranasal may be the, the fact that it can be a bit noxious to the nares and so can burn uh, on administration. Um, but utilizing the, the higher concentration for the intranasal route to, to minimize the volume that needs to be given uh, would be a, a key there. Um, but uh, I think... Uh, Midazolam really is an optimal uh, for most kids, um, and, and I, only, I only do uh, children's emergency work, but for most kids, uh, midazolam is, is an optimal anxiolytic agent. 
Yeah, and I've heard some advocate for uh, pre-administration of intranasal lidocaine to reduce the burning. And my experience with kids is like the fewer amount of squirts in the nose. You know, I don't many how many don't know how many times I've said it's just like a little backward sneeze, and then they're like, "You better never do that to me again." <laughs> you know, right. um, so I have sort of one shot and go. Just tell them or don't that it's going to burn. <laughs> tell the parents maybe. Um, you know. Pre-treat the parents more more than anything. I feel like. I guess I can say um, that lorazepam or Ativan, most of us would say, is, is an option. Again, if you just don't have certain stuff in your ED, that's something you can be con- considerate of. Uh, but the dosing we traditionally see for the adult side is going to be uh, one to two mix per kg. Again, I don't really see this used very often at all in the the young pediatrics. Uh, again, it could just be my experience, and well, then one to two mix. Yeah. Total, right? Not mix per yeah, day. Yeah, one or two mix just for the right, adult side. Right, right. Um, and then the, the main effects, again, you're going to see that sedation and retrograde amnesia, which you want. Onset is pretty crappy to me. Um, this is when I, I would say to get what you need, it's going to take anywhere from like 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, duration is a lot longer between, you know, say four to six hours on paper. I would probably say it depends on a host of other things. You can have a sure. patient very relaxed for a long period of time and mess up your dispo. So not an ideal agent for me. And you can still have that respiratory depression and hypotension. Anything that you guys can add on when it comes to um, lorazepam for your procedural sedation patients? So I like to use lorazepam um, for like oral lorazepam really more than anything. Um, It's usually when I'm doing uh, benzos. I'm I'm actually usually using them um, orally um, as a single dose or um, intravenously uh, with other agents. Um, but I'll do this for like a, a prolonged, like an MRI or something. Like if I'm doing an MRI of a spine, I'm trying to do um, some multimodal pain control for sure. And then patients are usually just anxious being in the tunnel, you know, the loud magnet tunnel that they're, you know, have oftentimes been in before and hate it. And so I try and just give them a little bit, something to take the edge off, you know, keep it anxiolysis. Don't go all the way down, you know, with lorazepam. Um, and I find that, that that it works pretty well in those kind of situations. Agreed. All right, guys. So the next one we're going to have on is going to be your fentanyl. Uh, fentanyl is going to be a great agent. It's going to be provide mostly just analgesia. It can provide a, a, a small level of sedation, but the intent usually is just to provide them a little uh, analgesia. The dosing that you can see is going to be anywhere from 0.5 to 1.5 mics per kilogram. Again, I'm going to say that again, mics per kilogram. I've got so many PSIs and so many reports uh, due to the fact that someone ordered milligrams per kilogram. And the EMR system should take care of that. But I think it's something we should just communicate that that can be a deal. So, of course, you can brought some, again, very good uh, energy for reductions and control of pain. Onset is rather quick. I, I love this. Again, the uh, textbook is going to say one to two minutes realistically. I ask patients about 30 seconds in. It's like, I feel a little different. You know, that that, that feels different. And that's all I, I, I really want them just to kind of bring them down a little bit. Uh, duration is going to be really about 30 to 60 minutes, I would see, again, for that once you get them their pain, their pain controlled. So that's going to be great. And then adverse effects, you have to look for this dose-dependent respiratory depression. I'm going to say this. Chest wall rigidity or rigid chest syndrome, I, I've seen it in a textbook Many, many times I have yet to find a physician or anyone who's practiced that seen it solely due to traditional dosing and administration of fentanyl. Again, that's the board's answer, guys. Um, but I- I've been pimped so many times by people who- who's-, who's given thousands of doses of fentanyl and I'm getting up there now as far as doses I've administered. This is not something that I traditionally see or have heard of. Um, but again, just to look out for it if your patient just stops being able to ventilate well. Um, you can just reverse them just like you would for respiratory depression. Um, we have a phenomenal agent for this. So it's something to consider. Uh, this is another agent that can be given, given intranasally as well. So that's going to be a great agent to to have have on board. So I think this is another cool agent. And usually I see like one to two mix, mics, mics per kilo as well for, for that. And again, concentration. I don't see many different ones like ketamine and propofol and midazolam. But again, usually I see the 50 micrograms per ml concentrations in most of my shops. So, again, this is a really cool agent to have, really works well. Um, yeah, big fan of fentanyl. Yeah, I like to use fentanyl for um, for abscess drainage, especially the deloculation of, uh, you know, complicated abscesses and the sort of expression of pus out of it. You know, there's 
you can put as much uh, topical anesthetic, intradermal anesthetic over an abscess that you're going to lance. And that may help with the initial incision, but the expression of pus is never tolerated well. Almost routine. I mean, I don't know if anyone who said, oh, that feels so much better. Thank you for squeezing my armpit, you know, where it's the most tender. You know, that's why I came in is so that you wouldn't touch it. Um, so I use fentanyl for short, super painful procedures. And again, co-administering other medications usually to help. Um, I've used it a lot for gluteal abscesses, um, you know, polynidal cysts, those kinds of things where it's like just at an unfortunate location, which abscesses often are. That's sort of the, that's how they arise. Right. Um, so I've actually done a few, um, polynidal abscess drainages that, um, with nitrous oxide actually. Um, so some inhaled anesthetic that we have available to us on the peed side, um, co-administering with uh, either oral morphine or uh, IV fentanyl if it's something that's going to be quicker. I'll say on the children's side, uh, most kids fear needle sticks more than just about anything in the world. And uh, kids who come in with orthopedic injury, and it's not definitively uh, a deformed forearm, let's say, but you know it's something that needs uh, an x-ray and it's going to require a little bit of uh, different positional manipulation to get the x-ray completed sufficiently. Intranasal fentanyl is, is a wonder drug for that, usually at around a, a 1.5 to 1.7, sometimes even up to 2 mics per kilo uh, to accomplish that, depending on um, the, the degree of, of distress and pain that the child is experiencing and the size of the child, right? I would probably max out. I, I don't think I would go up to 100 micrograms uh, total dose. I probably would max out somewhere in the 50 to 75 uh, microgram dose um, nasally, both from a volume standpoint and from a total dr- uh, a drug dose standpoint. But it has great um, uh, benefit to some of our patients who end up just having maybe a buccal fracture who won't need an IV uh, and, and procedural sedation to get that managed. They just are going to need a splint applied. So um, you may spare a lot of kids some needle sticks by utilizing fentanyl as an intranasal agent. All right, the next one is going to be a, a really interesting drug, Atomidate, and I think we've seen this used a little bit more recently. And I love Atomidate for many reasons, but I think we should talk about dosing-wise. I always say half-dose Atomidate, and that dose is going to be anywhere from 0.1 to 0.2 uh, mix per kg. And some people, even for our adult patients, for the average size patient, they say, oh, give me a 7 to 10 of Atomidate, but I think we should really just call those things out just to make sure. The main effect is going to be some uh, sedation and it's going to have some GABA, GABA receptor modulation as well. Onset is rather quick. Again, this is where the textbook actually gets it right, about 10 to 20 seconds. And the duration is rather short, being three to five minutes. So this is going to be great for a very quick thing to do. Uh, some things to look out for is this adrenal suppression. And the data is very, very controversial whether that means anything. We do know the numbers do become abnormal. Yes. Does that do anything for your patient? Probably not. For the people that we're doing this on, definitely not going to be a big deal. Um, but something just to keep in, 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 in respect, uh, the myoclonus reaction is a real deal. Yeah, you can definitely have this type of, uh, it looks like posturing. If, if, if you give it for you know, a certain patient, you get freaked out for a second. They stiff up on you. So not going to be something that I just reach for continuously. And respiratory depression is something to, to look for as well. But from a hemodynamic standpoint, this is a phenomenal agent. You're not going to have much of anything happening when it comes to heart rate, blood pressure, and, and things of that nature. So what, when do you guys like to throw this into your cocktail? I only use this for um, for cardioversion for for electrical cardioversion of of patients, um, mostly because all the other indications that um, have tr- you know it could potentially be used for. I'm going to propofol, yeah. you know, and in uh, patients where the hemodynamics are a little bit tenuous, I just stick with Atomidate. I've used it for every pharmacologic or uh, every uh, electrical cardioversion that I've had, and and I've had excellent success with it. And so for me, if it's not broke, why would I try and fix it? I would say uh, uh, I can't even recall giving it uh, in a pediatric patient. Um, There were some, uh, during my training 15 plus years ago now, uh, hard to believe, um, I saw some of this uh, in the adult emergency department, but would defer to Quinn for present day um, utilization of Atomidate. We still use it, obviously, in the setting of rapid sequence intubation, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast. Something that's. Something that's newer that's been coming about, and I haven't had the chance to use it yet, is the use of dexmedetomidine or Presidex. 
Um, some people are giving it as an IV push of, of one mic per kilo over 10 minutes. And then intranasal, this is going to be something they can use of one to 2.5 mics per kilo. Um, again, something that I'm not too big on. I don't have um, Presidex sticks downstairs. I only have the drips. Uh, something that, again, it's just, I've, hear, I've heard it. Uh, it just, it's for me, it just takes too long. If I'm going to follow the directions of giving something over 10 minutes, that defeats the purpose. Um, so, but just going through the basics and I have some um, sedation and analgesia components. The onset's going to be within, the textbook's going to say 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, probably the push is going to get you a little closer than that, but still not favorable for me. And the duration is going to be right from five, five to eight minutes. So if something takes longer for me to push, then it, then it takes the work. It's just not going to be uh, ideal for me. The bradycardia and hypotension are two things to look for. But interestingly enough, you can actually have the opposite occur of having hypertension and tachycardia due to just this paradoxical effect that traditionally happens with the bolus more commonly. But again, something that I'm not very familiar with. I've never done this. And I'm pretty sure someone's going to look at me like, Jimmy, you just don't know what you're missing. And it, it's not given that way. Please message me or tweet me or something and tell me how you guys use this because this is not something that I'm familiar with. And for the most part, I haven't needed to do this. So don't know if you guys have ever used Presidex in your population. I'm mostly adult, but I would love to have someone else talk about it. Um, I, I have not used it. Um, it certainly uh, makes a lot of sense uh, in practice to have um, a nice, smooth, you know, centrally acting alpha two um, agonist. Um, Seems pretty elegant. You know, I've had some of my ICU colleagues, PICU adult ICU colleagues, um, who use it regularly, not only for um, like long sedation for like patients that are on, uh, that are intubated and on, on ventilators and, um, you know, sparing propofol, I think is probably uh, the most common reason, you know, indication for it, uh, at least in the ICU setting, uh, from what I've heard from some of my colleagues, but haven't personally used it. Um, I'm certainly guilty of being an early adopter of about, any cool new uh, medication uh, for better or for worse. So um, I guess I'll look for that coming down the pipeline and, and, you know, uh, see if there are some patients that might benefit from it. On the pediatric side, I will say uh, again, um, uh, the intranasal use of dexmedetomidine at around uh, two mics per kilo seems to be well tolerated in terms of uh, the noxiousness of its standpoint. So it's so it's uh, reported to be not nearly so uh, dis- uh, uncomfortable as, um, as uh, intranasal midazolam. Um, it does take, probably 20 minutes or so to see um, a, a desired uh, level of, of uh, anxiolysis and sedation reached with that dose. Um, but it's uh, it's been done um, uh, in settings in which time is not of the essence, right? So if you have time to apply uh, some uh, lidocaine, epinephrine, and tetracaine um, gel to a laceration and give um, uh, an intranasal dose of dexmedetomidine, ensuring that you can get the patient um, on the monitor um, uh, at least a pulse ox uh, during that time um, uh, to allow those medicines uh, to work uh, in synergy. Um, I guess not pharmacologic synergy, but but allow those medicines to work simultaneously to get your patient in a state of readiness for a laceration repair. Let's say, um, uh, alternatively, similar doses uh, being used for uh, for some imaging procedures. It's been uh, reported to be beneficial, but again, in my daily practice, uh, we're not using uh, dexmedetomidine, and so uh, I would defer to the intensivists and uh, and outside the OR, outside the ER sedation service f- for the use of dexmedetomidine. I'm just going to mention mexohexitol solely due to the fact that it's a it's an older agent that I've seen used in some, my previous shop for as far as their their um, kits. So many times you have places that have kits for procedural sedation. This is something that was there. Um, again, just for, if someone is out there using it, please let me know. Uh, dosing, we're going to talk about anywhere from 50 to 100 milligrams for an adult patient with around uh, 70 milligrams average. They be pushed rather slowly over like again every 10 milligrams over like five seconds, so probably over a minute or so. And then for the pediatric patient, the, the textbook's going to say to give intramuscular anywhere from 6.6 to 10 mg per kg. Um, administer as this 5% solution. Again, this is something that I have not used, something that I don't see often. And I've actually dismantled a physical kit that had this in there for a virtual kit solely because the fact that we've never used it. So uh, something that's not really big for me. Main effects going to be a really potent hypnotic with a GABA, GABA receptor activity and with amnesia and anticonvulsant property. 
Uh, once you actually get it in, it's rather quick on set and, and lasts about 10 to 20 minutes. So I can see why people would use it. But again, uh, some of the adverse effects is hiccup, coughing, muscle twitching, all the things I don't want happening in the middle of a sedation. Sure. Um, but again, something that I haven't used quite quite often, and it's actually probably challenging to actually mix as well because it comes. The one, my, my concentration had a, uh, you had to actually reconstitute it. So all things not ideal for me. I actually, I've used this in my... Uh covered wagon out in the uh, battlefield um, to uh, for some of my soldiers um, that are out there um, in the battlefield of my covered wagon. And I use it usually with ether and laudanum mixed together, all in one tincture um, and just a little dropperette and, you know, with some, with some clove oil and it works really, really well for them. They tolerate it really well. <laughs> I have nothing to add. <laughs> So we mentioned all of that and going forward, and I think we mentioned a lot of this before, but I just wanted to, to highlight some of the complications of procedure sedation. I'm just going to just recap it because I think we, we hit a lot, a lot of this so far. It's the big thing we're looking for is going to be respiratory. That's going to be the main thing that we have everyone involved with, whether it's going to be aspiration, uh, hypoventilation, hypoxia, the, the rare chance of spasm or just apnea altogether. Those are the things we're, we're looking for, and that's why we have all the equipment, all the expertise to be there. And again, our team can definitely do a good job of taking care of it, especially in the emergency department. I think there's no better place for something like this to happen because we can really easily take care of that with no problem. Um, and then from a cardiovascular standpoint, you can have that hypotension or bradycardia. Or on the other end of it with ketamine, you can have the hypertension or tachycardia, which are again, both transient. And if you know and select the right patient, you'll be fine. Vomiting is something to be considered considered of again not something that's going to necessarily completely disrupt everything because it may not happen during the procedure and then the emergent phenomenon with ketamine is something to be aware of and i'm, I'm being honest if you do some pre-induction coaching uh you, you give some anxiolysis your patient usually does well and i think if you tell them hey you may see some funny stuff you, you can be you can you can really pick your dreams and i've had a guy who who's getting a chest tube and I, he's told me he was at a cookout and as he's seeing blood He's like, oh, catch up. So you can be in a great spot when a guy's holding his arm up by himself. Like he's just holding the arm and everything was fine. He's getting a chest tube placed and he's like blazing out at a cookout. Like he was having a great time with the French fries and the ketchup. That was actually his blood and the French fries was actually the the tube going inside of him. So again, you can put people in a good place. You just have to go from there. But that's really the, 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 the complications and things to look for. And the last thing I'm just going to point out is just, I missed this earlier, was just reversal agents to have on staff. And we mentioned it before, but having naloxone and flumazine available and making sure that, again, we know exactly where those agents are. Because this is the cool part. If, if you're using fentanyl and midazolam as your, your key drivers, you can reverse those agents. But I will caveat with flumazine, yeah. if you're the only only source of GABA receptor, you know, synthetic GABA receptor antagonism, then this makes sense to do. But if there's any other, most of our adult patients, uh, we don't know what else they've, they've had. Right. That's right. Uh, we don't know. Again, they came in from a car accident and they have a, a shoulder reduction and they have ETOH on board. They have a history. That's not something you want to do due to the fact that you can actually, you know, cause a benzo resistant status at the lab. Because, mm-hmm. and again, this is probably a board thing. And I have some people who's probably going to say, oh, Jimmy, that doesn't happen. But I wouldn't want to be in the courtroom when, when if something like this occurs. Sure. Uh, so half of the job, I'd say, is me, me taking care of the patient. The other half is me being the ED's lawyer. And this is one of the things <laughs> I like to make sure thank that yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not encouraging the use of this solely because, oh, I gave we, we gave benzos. Like, well, we, the patient also had, you know, a history of three months worth of alcohol abuse. They've also, they supplement with, you know, illicit Xanax and mm. things in nature that we just don't know. And we, we're yeah. not going to have the results to. And unfortunately, some of these patients, they're not going to be conscious enough to actually, you know, mm-hmm. or want to for be forthcoming, I should say, with that type of information. Right. So right. keep keep that in mind. But again, if you have to go that route, the dose is going to be uh, 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams. You're going to give it like over a minute. Uh, you should see a very, very quick response. Uh, and then from there, it's going to last about 45 minutes. And then with um, naloxone or Narcan, anywhere from, again, I traditionally like to be very light with this since we don't have to, like 0.04 right. um, up front and then titrate to anywhere to like 0.4 to if you're in a really bad shape, you're going to get close to cardiac arrest up to two. Right. But again, be conscious of your 
many formulations that you have in your ED, whether it's going to be intranasal, intramuscular, IV. You're going to have a host of different formulations, and you may have to dilute this a, a, a good bit, especially for your pediatric patients, just to be able to give the dose that you want. So that's my, my caveat when it comes to your, the reversal agents. And um, yeah. All right, guys, we're getting ready to close this up. And I want to make sure that if you guys had any major, you know, takeaways from yourself that you want the audience to kind of listen to this episode and say, hey, this is the one or two things I want to, to get from this. And is there any, you know, any caveats to the adult side versus the pediatric side? And really just kind of bring this episode home. Yeah, I think for me, the most important thing is to uh, see into the potential future. You know, think about. What is the worst possible thing that could happen? What are all the possible adverse effects? And have a plan, not only a plan in your mind, but also logistically, spatial awareness in your mind going through, okay, this patient needs fluids. Where are the bag of fluids? You know, where, what kind of IV do they have? Going through every step in your process and not actually doing it, but at least going through the, men- the mental steps and also announcing that too to the room. Hey, this patient has a borderline low blood pressure. We're giving propofol, and I still think that that's the most appropriate agent. Here's what we should expect, and here's what we're going to do, the steps that we're going to take if this happens. Verbalizing that out loud to the team takes so much of the stress out of the situation, a situation that already is a little bit stressful, right? Even though it's routine for us, for maybe for a new nurse or maybe for a resident or, you know, or the proceduralist, this might be a harrowing moment for them. And if you show command of the patient, the pathology, the pharmacology, if you show command knowledge of what to expect and what to do when things don't go quite as expected, um, that brings a sort of calm, not only to the room, but also, you know, an extra layer of safety to the patient whenever you're sort of treading on some potentially troublesome waters. Uh, a couple of things I, w- I would add to that. Uh, I totally agree. Um, one is the absence of adverse events or outcomes is not uh, proof of the presence of safe practice. So patients uh, generally are quite forgiving in terms of their physiology and their tolerance of this uh, pharmacology that we're throwing at them. And uh, they may do just fine, but if we don't have the bag mag valve, uh, bag valve mass set up or if we don't have oxygen or if we don't have the fluids or resuscitative equipment or whatever we need, should the untoward event occur, um, just because no adverse event transpired didn't mean we were uh, ready to uh, navigate and handle it if it, if it were to have transpired. So, so uh, we should never grow um, complacent and overconfident that we know exactly what's going to happen and that we're the, you know, the best sedation provider uh, around. Uh, the other is um, is being willing to say no. Uh, we mentioned this earlier. There's not much more I like to do than provide procedural sedation to patients because it's helping them through a, a really bad day um, and hopefully getting them uh, on the road to recovery uh, and to the rest of their life. But some patients just aren't good candidates for this. Uh, some patients are better served by our anesthesia colleagues in the operating room. Some patients, uh, it may not be um, an, a hard no, but it may, it may be a not now, right? The emergency department census or acuity uh, isn't such, or our staffing isn't such that we can take a, a um, 30 minutes or so to dedicate to a single patient when there are other high acuity or, or a high volume state in the emergency department. So the willingness to say no is, uh, is an important thing that, that's hard, I think. Um, and uh, to that end, sometimes saying yes creates precedent that will impact further downstream scenarios, right? So if Dr. Cummings will uh, s- says yes to a very complicated, higher risk patient and it goes well, I don't think uh, Quinn is going to do that, but let's say it went well or nothing bad happened. Well, the next time that scenario rolls around, that proceduralist may assume that this is just what emergency department care involves. You're willing to throw uh, ketamine or propofol at any patient that comes in the door. Yeehaw. And so uh, somebody's going to suffer from that down the line. Uh, the patient you know, that you thought about saying no to, but you just couldn't quite back down from, uh, from the proceduralist attending who says this is ER work, not OR work. Uh, and so you acquiesce. 
That patient might do fine and probably will, but some patient down the road, if you keep saying yes and never hit the pause button, never say no and here's why, you're going to hurt somebody. And um, and so you have to be willing to say, I sedate for 500 cases, uh, almost everything, all the time, every year. But 25 times a year, we might need to say no. And that's that's a pretty reasonable thing to do if you're thinking about uh, optimal patient outcomes. So. Yeah, willingness well, to say you know, one thing I've learned is that every patient is fine until they're not. Yep. Sure. Yep. All right, guys. So I guess the, the anyone who's listening again, especially pharmacists, I want you guys to kind of take of a take a different approach to this and look at what, what you do within these scenarios and realize this is a lot that our physician colleagues have to be aware of. And ask yourself, where can you fit in to offload some of this and build some relationships? I go to when I'm on shift, I go to all procedural sedations. And it's just to be another person there that has the knowledge of what's going on, that understands the, the totality of what's going on and offload anything to do with drug medication. And where and I, I tell my nursing staff, you know, I, I may be drawing up. You may see me drawing up drugs. But the thing that I do for every scenario is the what if game. What if this goes bad? What what if the hypotension gets more than what can be done with fluids? What if all these different things? So I think understanding the right drug and the right dose and it's understanding What's the duration and onset of these agents and being prepared to be uh, active in case something happens? Because, again, you may have two IV accesses and one side can have the sedation and things going. But what if something goes bad? You can get ready to hook up a bag of nitro. You can be ready to push some push dose pressors. You can be able to do these different things in the other side and just be prepared. And I think having that dare is going to be great when those those few times when things get really bad. And you can make your team and you can make sure you have the best patient care outcomes by being that type of pharmacist. And most of you guys who know me is the my big thing is to take it from brain to vein. So literally anything that can happen, you get that thing into that patient's arm as soon as you can to prevent any, you know, abnormal things. Um, lastly, it's just understanding the key components of a success, successful sedation is going to be planning. And for you to have the drugs there have, and have everything done from even formulary decisions and your automated, automated dispense cabinets, having the right com- concentrations there. And always remember, guys, especially if you're working with the pediatric, your intranasal and intramuscular routes can be used, especially in a pediatric patient. And always consider different things like regional anesthesia. Just talk to your team and figure out are there different mechanisms and you know, how com- after you do it for a while, you got a few years in the game and you have, you know, a good relationship with your docs and say, hey, this is not one to one you traditionally do. This is not something I, I've seen you do. I don't know if this is on your on your mind or just going back and forth. Do we have the time to do this and provide different options? Because as a pharmacist, again, a lot of this can be what you saw outside of your scope. But I think if you think of yourself as a leader and a person that's part of the ED team looking at the entire process, you can be a colleague that can say, hey, um, this is something that's a little unique. I know there's a lot going on. There's, is there any other route that we can use? And I can help you from a drug standpoint. Right. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing wrong with having just another arrow in your quiver. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Go from there. Well, that's all I, I have. Um, do you guys have any um, social media or anything like that? Do you guys want to put out for people to get in contact with you? Yeah. You can follow me um, on Twitter at recess underscore Bay B A E. And you can follow me on Twitter at BFJ underscore PEM, P-E-M underscore M-D. Perfect, guys. So, of course, again, you can find all this at our, at our website, farmsoheart.com. I'm going to have a ton of resources. And if you want to get deeper into a lot of this, and I'm going to have a few courses and things built up, you can definitely visit us at the PACU. Again, Pharmacy and Acute Care University, that's where I do a lot of my premium work and membership is going to be there. So you can definitely catch us on that. But, of course, guys, you know how I end every single episode. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. 